Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Brittany Hartley, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? I'm doing exceptional. I didn't shave today, so people are seeing all this scruff on my face, but... I'm excited to be here and uh, really excited for the episode you've got plotted out for us. Yeah, I'm super excited for today's guest. But before I go into that, I have to hear about, I saw some pictures of you getting a tattoo this weekend. Mm, so I have good. to ask how that experience was and just what you feel comfortable sharing with uh, us. Oh, yeah, there yeah, it let is. Me, uh, <laughs> let me put that off. So it's a mushroom with a butterfly on it. Um, my wife and her family, they were all in Vegas for a niece's wedding and uh, they were all going to go to the tattoo parlor the next day. And this tattoo parlor is known in Vegas for just doing really cheap tattoos. You can get $10 tattoos, you know, so they had $10 wall, $20 wall, $30 wall, and a $60 wall. And I looked through the 10 to 30. We went the next morning, we get there and they were all going to get like matching hearts. And I just wasn't up for matching with, uh, with all of my in-laws. And there's a long story there, but I'll leave that for another episode. But, um, I saw on the $60 wall, the magic mushroom with the butterfly on it and being a huge fan of psychedelics and conscious altering tools. Um, that one connected with me and I don't have any tattoos. My wife has had three and now I think she's got five or six, but she had three and this is my first one. And, uh, it hurt like hell, but I didn't cry. I didn't, I didn't move while he was doing it, but it felt like somebody had a serrated knife digging, you know, half inch under my skin. Mm -hmm. and uh, it hurt, but uh, I'm really excited to have the tattoo. Um, and by the way, I've got your window here switched around. There we go. Oh, Names okay. now match. Um, it was, it was, I'm glad I got it. I look at it now and I'm really happy with it. Would you get another one or you think you're a one and done? No, no, I think I, I want a bigger one, but I just haven't seen the right thing yet. And, and I want something that'll kind of cover up my whole shoulder, but I want something that really strikes my fancy as being kind of, personal to me and I mm. haven't seen it. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I remember I, I have one, I got one in the, about uh, two years ago. And I remember thinking this feels like when Harry Potter was like writing and then it like wrote on his hand where it was like digging into his skin. I was like, it feels like that. <laughs> Cause yeah. I always have a Harry Potter reference for whatever I'm going through. But Aside from that, we are so excited for today's guest, and we had a couple people who posted on our Facebook page when we said we'd be having Noah Rochetta today, just posting that they were so excited. So we're going to bring on the one and only Noah Rochetta, a Buddhism teacher, author of the No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners book, and the host of the very, very successful podcast, uh, Secular Buddhism. So we'll bring Noah on here. Hi, Noah. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? We are great. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're super honored and excited for this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. All right. So I'm just going to jump in because I've just been thinking all week of all the questions that I want to ask you. 
And so I just wanted to ask, um, you had a little bit of a unique growing up experience in your in in faith and religion because you grew up in a mixed faith household. So I just wanted to know just what was that like and how did that um, how did that really affect you and your faith journey? Um, well, so growing up, I don't know that I would have identified my family as a mixed faith household, definitely a mixed cultural household mm. where my, my mom is Mexican and my dad was American. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, my mom continued to carry her, her uh, religious views from her upbringing, which is Catholic, while my dad kind of embarked us on this uh, other path of spirituality as he he converted to Mormonism and the whole family kind of did too. Um, so, but during those years, I didn't know that my mom was kind of a Catholic at heart. Uh, it wasn't until uh, as an adult that I realized that that's how it was, but I definitely did grow up with the two cultures just being right there in my face. One whole side of the family. We only spoke Spanish with my, everyone on my mom's side, aunts, uncles, uh, grandparents, it was a very Catholic family. So in that sense, yes, it was very uh, different than the other side of the family that's American, more Protestant, um, English, uh, things like that. Mm. And so you grow up in this mixed faith uh, or mixed culture household, right? And um, eventually you start to deconstruct and try to figure out kind of your own faith and your own kind of what you want to do. And you've been fairly public about your deconstruction story. So I don't want to spend too much time there because I think people who have followed your work are fairly Oops, familiar with it. Up. Oh, you froze up there for just a second, Britt. Repeat Sorry. that last couple of okay. seconds. Um, we're appreci I'm appreciative that you've been fairly open about kind of your deconstruction journey. Um, and so I think people who have followed your work are fairly familiar with your story. So I don't want to spend too much time there. What really interests me is that after kind of your deconstruction, um, you kind of kept searching for the one true way or something to kind of fill right like this hole that this void that, um, you know, your faith and all this structure that you grew up with. Um, kind of left after you deconstructed. And so I'm just curious, like, what was that like for you? And what allowed you to kind of let go of that truth seeking? And why do we kind of have that tendency, especially deconstructing Mormonism, to kind of jump to the next prophet? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting how that process works. I think growing up in a, in a religion that kind of presents you with the the scenarios that here's reality and reality we've got you know here's all the answers this is the one true way every other way is the wrong way um you don't question that you assume there is a one true way and i think when you start to deconstruct the faith uh, at least the way it happened for me instead of throwing it all out the window it's kind of like okay well then maybe this isn't the one true way let me figure out what the one true way is. And that's how it worked for me. Um, as I started to deconstruct Mormonism, I went back a few notches to Christianity. And then within the realm of Christianity, wanted to find out, well, um, who else is teaching what? Maybe maybe there's another one that will speak to me that's like, okay, this is the, the right way again. 
So I started, um, I started down that journey, listening to uh, reading books and listening to um, uh, like audio series that present the presentations by other world uh, religions. And there was one specifically that I came across on uh, Audible that was something to the effect of like the, the meaning of life presented by the major world traditions. And they had a presenter that represented Christianity, one for Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And I remember going through each of these uh, organizations or, or presentations, listening and taking notes, like, I don't know about this, or, oh, maybe this makes sense. But in general, feeling that same sense of, I don't know that I'm going to find it. This doesn't make any more sense than what I just left. Until the presenter on Buddhism, when he started his series uh his lecture he started right out everyone was saying like who are we why are we here what happens when you die that it was like the main existential questions here is what our faith tradition says here are the answers so the the buddhist presenter gets up and says i'm sorry we don't have answers to any of those questions we're gonna flip it and say where does the need to know come from the, the question might be more important than the answer and i remember still like dropping my notebook thinking, huh, never thought about it from that angle. I've always focused on give me the answers and then I'll assess if that's answer makes sense to me. And suddenly here I was being told, forget the answer. Let's focus on the question. Where does the need to know come from? Who, wh what's the part of you that has that deep need to know? And that was it. I thought, okay, that's the, that's the path I want to go down to not to find the answers anymore, but to understand the questions. Um, so that's that was the first time that it occurred to me. Maybe there isn't uh, one true way. Um, but then I became very fascinated with why do we tend to seek the one true way? And that, that was the start of my journey with Buddhism and introspection and trying to get to know myself more and my questions. That's so I'm interesting. A... When I was sometimes in my work as a spiritual director, I'll notice this tendency. Someone's really trying to look for the one true way again. And um, it, sometimes it takes us a while for us to intuitively learn. I'm not really getting anywhere doing this, this tool that I keep trying to use to try to build my life. It's not working. And, you know, then, then you're more open to maybe trying a different tool or trying a different perspective. Bill, I think you had the next question there. Well, I just, I wanted to, to ask, I mean, um, we just recently had a conversation with David Peck and we were talking about kind of a secular version of Suf Sufism. And uh, like you, I've been deeply, and I know Britt is as well, been deeply interested in secular Buddhism. And I'm just curious, you know, you, as you begin to kind of get introduced to Buddhism, who were the voices and what was the process that you felt safe and permission to kind of take a secular approach to it? Uh, so I had encountered the, you know, the main names that you encounter with, with Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, and I, I noticed I really enjoyed a lot of the quotes and the ideas that were shared, uh, but I, I knew I was not interested in any other ism for me at that stage of my life, and somewhere somehow I came across Stephen Batchelor. I think he had a book called uh, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, and that title really. Uh, stuck out to me. I was like, okay, uh, let's hear this. And that's when I realized there was a, 
a movement of a more secular approach to Buddhism. And I would say he was kind of spearheading that at the time. And that took me down that path where I felt safe to dive into Buddhism without any uh, risk of entangling with a label again that would trap me into some kind of dogmatic thought. Yeah. For, so, for me, it was you and Noah or uh, you and uh, Jack Hornfield. And uh, I, I read your book, which was, I think, something along the lines of an introduction to Buddhism. And then he had a Buddhism for beginners. And like you're pointing out, it's this Eastern wisdom that's really had kind of a long amount of time to refine itself and has been deeply helpful to me. So I just want to say thank you for your work, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So my question is, what is it about Buddhism that makes it easier than other religions um, to secularize? Because some religions can have a secular wing to it and some just really don't. I know Jews who are atheists. I know Buddhists who are atheists. Um, it's a little bit harder to be a Roman Catholic and be an atheist, you know, there's, there's some things that are easier and harder to do. And some branches of religion really don't have a secular wing to their faith. You don't meet a lot of atheist Mormons, at least ones that are public in saying that. Um, so what is it about Buddhism that allows it to just say, okay, let's put the isms and God down for a second and kind of try this from a different angle what what enables it to do it that maybe other religions can't do as well make that pivot as well well buddhism from the onset is is a non-theistic tradition so it doesn't run into the issue of having to um write god out of the picture because they're already you start at that where that's not even part of the equation i think um you know the the majority of the topics and concepts that you'll encounter in Buddhism are so inward focused. Again, like the example of it's not about the answers, it's about the questions. So it makes it a path that's very easy to say, well, I'll approach this path with zero um, thought about the supernatural or the unknowable things, because it, there was never a foundation that starts on that that says, Hey, here's what you don't know about life. Well, here's what we think it may be. And you have to have faith in that. And then later try to write that out. There's nothing to write out, um, at least with Buddhism. Um, with other traditions that I've encountered or that I've studied, that kind of is the, um, the focus of it is the answer to the unknowable. So it makes it really difficult to question that because that is the premise of, of that specific uh, faith usually. So I'm, I'm going to jump off on a little tangent here. I, this was super probably naive of me, but I'm just gonna just, just, um, like lay this out. I went to Thailand a few years ago to really, and I wanted to understand Buddhism better. I I'm, I'm a student of world religions. It's something I'm really passionate about, but of course in the West over here, I was mostly familiar with kind of secular Western strands of Buddhism. And I kind of went over to Thailand thinking that this was Buddhism. <laughs> and I go over and it was very superstitious, lots of talismans, lots of doing things to gather good luck and avoid bad luck and lots of patriarchy where women were, you know, can women be monks and can they not? And will they have to do extra things to be monks because they're women? 
And I was kind of um, lots of like prosperity gospel. And so I was really surprised because, you know, the Buddhism that I had encountered in America was much more secular. Um, and so I guess my question is, what is different about secular Buddhism than other strands of Buddhism that are being practiced in the East? Because when I went over there, I was really surprised at how, um, I guess, superstitious it was because I didn't experience that in American Buddhism. Anyway, just any thoughts there? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Buddhism has mixed quite well with whatever the cultural flavor is of where it spreads to. And that's why you have like Buddhism in Thailand is very different from Buddhism in Japan, for example, or Buddhism in the West, um, where as, as a society, we tend to be more, uh, less interested in, in the ritualistic aspects of it. And we, we approach it from almost too much of an intellectual aspect where we think through it, you know? Um, I think those are just the various flavors um, what we do know if you, and, and this is some of the work Stephen Batchelor has been doing, going back and translating and trying to ex extract out of the oldest writings, what you find is a very, um, minimalistic way of understanding the unknowable. So that tells us that anywhere where it's become more faith-based or heavy with the ritual may just be the, the flavor of how it evolved there. Uh, Zen Buddhism is quite minimalistic when it comes to that. Tibetan Buddhism is not. My first encounter, I went to a Tibetan Buddhist temple and did an eight-week study program there and was quite surprised that it wasn't at all like what my experience had been in Zen Buddhist temples where you didn't have all the ringings of the bells and the chanting anywhere near the same amount. Um, so yeah, I think it just kind of adapts to the way the culture interprets it. And I treat it like, um, what are the useful, like if all of them are anything that I can extract out of any tradition, these are like little tools I can put into my tool belt. And the, what are the tools for? How to get through life more skillfully. And um, I feel like we've extracted out of the Buddhist tradition some of the tools that seem to fit well for people who tend to be agnostic or uh, atheistic in their way of thinking, um, then the secular approach to Buddhism has worked really well, giving tools that work for that specific type of person. It, it seems as though, um, see how I want to word this. It, it, one of the principles that I've understood as I've dived into, as I've dove into to secular Buddhism is this idea of being present. Just be right here, right now. And it seems like the world at large, maybe, you know, over the last maybe 20 years, really is starting to get that message out, I think, everywhere. Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, New Earth. Um, Michael Singer, I forget what the name of uh, his book is, but he talks a lot about being present. It seems like we as a, as a people in, in uh, Western society are beginning to really sense the wisdom that's available there. And I'm just curious if you're seeing that and if you've got any other anecdotal thoughts or ideas or data on the planet maybe moving towards a more present, more, I don't want to say woke, because I think that word has such a bad label, but a, a more awakened culture. Yeah, you know, I think for a long time, 
as a civilization, we've wrestled with the fear of what happens when we die. That's like the, the big question, right? What happens when we die? And I feel like recently there's been a stronger shift to, well, what happens while we're alive? Maybe that's what really matters. What do we do while we're still alive? And I know for me, that was very much so the shift of focusing on the existential, looking for answers, and then encountering this uh, way of thinking, the Eastern way of thinking or Buddhist influenced way of thinking that says, well, what about the present? Uh, maybe what happens while we're alive is more important than what happens when we die. And I may it may have never occurred to me had I not encountered uh, these thoughts. And I think it's the way technology is nowadays. We we encounter so much more in terms of thoughts and opinions and, and ideas. And maybe that's why we're seeing such a strong shift. It's almost like you can go into a room of 100 people and bring up this notion of, hey, what about what about life instead of death? And you'd have like 50% of the room say, ah, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, what about what, what happens while I'm alive? And then boom, there's the shift, right? And I think that's what, that's what I'm noticing and seeing. There's a lot of interest in shifting that focus from the unknown or the unknowable to what is known that we don't spend a lot of time looking at, which is our own mind. Why do I say what I say? Why do I do what I do? Why do I react? Why am I feeling this emotion? What is this emotion I'm feeling? And the more introspective we get, um, I, I, I see that shift happening. Are you noticing too that um, secular Buddhism is just really poised? I just see it as so poised to offer something to this new kind of generation because we have this we have postmodernism where people are just kind of getting the sense that, hey, we're all just debating on which God and which heaven is true. That just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And then we have, you know, social media and just this high level of distractibility, this high level to be able to really go through life numb. And we're just noticing these higher and higher rates of depression and anxiety. And we're learning that um, this kind of secular slash con but consumerism side of just being an American in this time period um, has its own really unique challenges. So do you see secular Buddhism as growing because it's um, addressing challenges that are really unique to the dismantlement of religion and confusion going on happening today? Yeah, I do. In fact, where, where I live here, um, it's, it's a, a community that's very, uh, very Mormon. It's a very Mormon community, the state of Utah in general and pockets within the state. And there are a lot of people who are becoming disaffected with religion. Uh, people like me who for one reason or another, suddenly one day you're like, I don't know if this makes sense to me anymore. And they're looking to fill that void with something. Um, some people for a while don't want to have anything to do with anything but then I think a lot of people do realize, well, you know, I still tend to want to be a good person who doesn't cause harm and, you know, like certain traits that seem to be more uh, natural. And maybe it's not just because you're religious that it's not what makes you good isn't that you're religious. Maybe you're good. And that's why you gravitated to religion. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do think that encountering uh a philosophy like secular Buddhism or Buddhism in general does fit that need to have 
some frame of thought that gives us concepts and ideas that can work as tools to to be a little bit more skillful with how we go about living without feeling any of that pull that you would get from a lot of religions where it's like, hey, you, you kind of like this, what you're experiencing? Well, come on, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then it's like, now don't listen to anyone else. Uh, then this uh, with secular Buddhism, or I guess even Buddhism in general, it feels a lot more like, hey, you like this? Yeah, we'll listen to more of this, but keep listening to everything else. There's no pressure. It's not a sales. It's not. It doesn't feel like you've encountered a salesperson who's preaching. There is no preaching taking place. It's just hey, this is useful stuff. And if it's useful for you, go for it. If it's not, don't mess with it. And I think that's something that surprises a lot of people, at least the way I talk about Buddhism. So like, do you, do you think I need Buddhism in my life? It's like, no. I mean, who who is Buddhism for? The people who are looking for something like this. Um, and I always equate it to the, the other big thing I do in my life. I teach uh, powered paragliding and paragliding. I teach people to fly and run off of a mountain with a fabric wing over your head. And I love it. It brings so much joy to me in my life to do that. But do I think everyone should do that? No, absolutely not. If you're afraid of heights, don't try this. You're going to hate this. I feel the same way about Buddhism. It's like, well, this is something that brings me a lot of joy, but it may not for you. If you're not an introspective type who wants to get into your own mind, then definitely don't come here. You're not going to like what you're going to find over here. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I see a lot in post-religious spaces, especially in post-Mormonism, this kind of like allergy to any kind of ism or any kind of teacher or any kind of new way, right? There can be like a real, um, even like deep in your body, like allergy against that. And so just kind of seeing that that different kind of open door can at least help people to build some structure and meaning in their life in a, in a way that feels safe. Um, especially when there's religious trauma involved. So my next question is, um, as you're meeting with people and you're talking about meditation or mindfulness, what are some of the stereotypes that can kind of get in the way of people getting the benefits? I know sometimes we'll talk, I'll talk to someone about mindfulness and there'll be this kind of response that, um, that I don't wear Lululemon and I can't sit in a full Lotus pose. So I can't, I can't do this. Yeah, I, I think the most common misconception that I encounter about meditation as a practice or, well, yeah, like uh, even Buddhism, like this this notion that here's how I am and this this is something to make me other than how I am, right? Here's chaotic me. If I sit in meditation, that's to become inner peace me or or something to that effect. And naturally you'll think, well, I, I can't do that. I don't have the patience to sit on a cushion and meditate. That's not for me. And and that's the misconception, right? It's not a practice to change who you are. It's not a practice to shift from I'm uncomfortable with where I am in life, and this will turn me into being comfortable with where I am in life. It's, it's that I'm trying to become more comfortable with the discomfort. Uh, I'm not trying to get rid of the discomfort. And ironically, that's what takes place with the practice is you become more comfortable, but it's not because life is now comfortable. It's because I've increased my ability to be comfortable with the discomfort. Uh, and when I explain it like that, or people understand it that way, then you realize, oh, this could be useful for anyone because all of us will encounter difficulties in life. The loss of a loved one, uh, the difficulty of losing your job or being frustrated with a flat tire on the side of the road, 
Like we all go through things like that. What if there was a tool that you could uh, learn to develop that helps you to be more comfortable with the discomfort you'll experience when you're sitting frustrated on the side of the road? Um, so yeah, I think um, I, I think that's that's something to keep in mind uh, when it comes to when you hear things like meditation. And I I hope that with time, some of those misconceptions become less common so that people will realize, hey, this is, it can be a useful skill set for anyone, whether you're an impatient person that doesn't like sitting and meditating, you don't have to sit and meditate. There's walking meditation, there's other forms of meditation. Awesome, love it. So I want to, I want to get into like Buddhism it, itself. And so um, as you're pointing out, secular Buddhism doesn't offer answers on the existential questions, which is great because the moment I would have, I would have smelled that I would have ran the other direction. And so it does this thing where it says like, Hey, you're a human being having a human experience. Let's see if we can tap into some of the, the thinking around what it means to be a human and see if we can show up better than we did the day before. And I, and I love that. And so you just mentioned this idea of uh, sitting with the discomfort I, I often call it a disturbance. Like we, something triggers us, something, you know, my wife says something that I think she's coming at me or I do something that upsets some other person or my kids are too loud and I want it to be quiet. Like the world is unfolding in front of me different than I want it to be. And, and, and as most of these Buddhist kind of ideas point out, we're either grasping at what we, what's there to keep it from leaving, or we're grasping at something that's not there to pull it in so we can get rid of what is there. And I'm just curious, outside of that idea of sitting with the disturbances or the discomforts that we feel day to day as the world isn't the way we want it, or the, it is the way we want it, but we it's fleeting and we see it going, what are some of the other principles that secular Buddhism brings out that helps people transform their lives? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I do I do think the main one is exactly what you're describing, especially when it comes to our thoughts, uh, feelings, and emotions. And we all know that there are certain feelings or emotions that when we experience, they're pleasant and we want to grasp, keep it around. Happiness, for example. I'll do what I need to to make sure happiness stays here and doesn't go away. And I'm going to put the a sharp barbed wire fence out there to make sure sadness doesn't get to come in, right? Like we prioritize our emotions based on the pleasant, unpleasant scale. And that's one of the huge benefits of, uh, of, of Buddhism as a practice is tearing down all the defenses and saying anything can come and go. I can have a more skillful relationship with the emotion that I experience while I'm experiencing it. Um, and, and all that's of a big this happens, deal, by the way, if I, if I can interrupt you for just a second, it's a big sure. deal because those defense mechanisms are often manipulation and coercion. They're often, uh, as you point out, defense or defensive strategies that often hurt somebody else in the process of trying to hold on to what we want or to push away what we don't. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we don't typically realize as we're caught up in this game of constantly pulling towards pulling what we want in and pushing what we don't want away, that becomes our habitual way of living. And there, imagine you have two scenarios here where on one side, habitual reactivity is that life is happening. Uh, a thought uh, or a, an expression is made that triggers a thought that triggers an emotion. And 
like you described, right? Something with your spouse, for example, and you're caught constantly in this web of react reactivity, habitual reactivity. I don't even know I'm doing it, but the mm. moment that this is said, that triggers this and now I'm mad and now, you know, and we go down that way of living and a habitual way of living. The counter to all of that through practices like this is that we could go about living life trying to be a little bit more skillful with our action. Here's what I'm deliberately doing or saying uh, because I've spent time being a little bit more introspective with myself and I understand my habitual tendencies. I know that when this topic is brought up, it makes me feel this way. And instead of just reacting now, I can catch it and say, okay, well, that, that makes me upset, but I know I know what's happening inside. So I'm going to be more skillful with what I say next. And eventually that puts you down this path where you're acting, you have a, a life of skillful action that's more, maybe that's happening more than the habitual reactivity. And it's not about, you know, reaching the point where now I'm never habitually reactive, but no, let's say, I don't know. 80% of your life, you're habitually reactive and 20% you're skillfully active. Um, and then you start changing those numbers. What if it was 50-50 or what if it slanted finally more to where I tend to be more uh, skillful with my action more than half of the time and less than half the time do I get caught up in the habitual reactivity? That alone you know, makes a practice like this so beneficial. Yeah. And I, I just want to say amen to that because it has always been over the last five years of kind of sitting with this stuff. It has always been never to be perfect at it because I'm still screwing it up almost daily, but it is to increase. And I've seen that to increase the number of kind of positive responses rather than reacting. Yes. Yeah. So I have two questions that have to do with children. So I get a lot of responses from people that will say something like, I really love my meditation practice, but I just don't know um, what to do with my kids. And so I have two questions. So first of all, like what practices do you do to um, instill your values and beliefs and tools to your own children? And then also, what do you see as um, the possibilities for the future of, of Buddhism or secular Buddhism in America? Because I look at where I live now, and if I wanted to take my child to preschool, there's a Lutheran church on every corner that has a preschool, and they will take my kids, and there's some Jesus, like, like light Jesus teachings, and I can take my kids to one of those. And there's churches, there's Christian churches, there's Mormon churches um, that all have egg hunts, you know, coming up where you can go and, and really instill these values as a community and include your children. And I don't really know of anywhere, um, even the sanghas that are available in Boise that uh, do anything for children. And so what do you do with your own kids? And then um, I'm just wondering if, if this kind of secular Buddhism, because it's such an internal practice, isn't more suited for just solo work? Or do you see opportunities for community building in the future? And what, what do you think that looks like? Uh, yeah, I've given it some thought and I think I'm similarly, I, I don't know. I don't know where this goes. Um, in my case specifically where I'm in a mixed faith marriage, um, my wife and kids still attend church, Mormon church. And that's kind of the baseline of their, uh, I guess their understanding of their worldview, right. Comes from, from that flavor. 
so the way I try to instill some of my values and some of my views to them is just through discussion and, and some practices. Meditation is a practice that we, we talk about and, and, and do at home. Um, and the two flavors of that, uh, the first one I have them practice um, where they'll take one of their items, their pillow, a stuffed animal, a toy, whatever it is, and I'll ask them, what did it take for this to be what it is? And we'll sit and play this game of deconstructing this thing into its causes and conditions. And then through that process, it may be, well, what is a stuffed animal filled with? And where does that come from? And who grows that? What part of the world does that come from? How did that get to the factory where they sewed it into this thing? You know, we'll just talk through it. And they know, they know that this is the game we're playing is see how far back you can go and create scenarios and usually at the end of a, a little discussion like that, they they view their toy differently now. It's not just this. It's this and all the things that made it this. So that's one practice that I hope with time, it will be a little bit more intuitive for them to approach anything in life and try to see beyond the thing. What are the things that make the thing the thing? And that's uh, interdependence, right? That's a, a, a neat lens to give or to a good useful lens to see things. Um, the other one that we practice is with boredom is very common, especially in this day and age. If the, if you're driving and there's no internet and the, the iPad isn't picking up a show, it's immediate. Like I'm bored. What, what do we do? And so we've made boredom a game like, Oh, you're bored. Okay. Well, let's play the, bo the boredom game. And they already know this. I don't think they, they like it when I do it, but the boredom game is, okay, well, let's see who can be the most bored. Are you more bored or am I more bored? What does being bored feel like? And then they have to describe the process of being bored. And the more we get into that, suddenly they're not bored. They're playing the game of boredom, which isn't boring. Um, and I've done it several times where at the end of that game, we'll talk about what does it even mean to be bored? When you say you're bored, it just means you're not paying attention to something else. Um, so we... Those are two common practices I do with my kids. I don't know how, with time, how that will evolve or how we could come up with things that are like community-based. I don't know. I feel like at least the way I approach it right now, my whole my whole goal or approach here is that I'm just trying to be the best whatever I am. In this case, I'm a dad. I'm a, a spouse to my wife. I'm a brother to my to my my two brothers, you know, I'm trying to be the best version of that that I can be that hopefully allows them to be the best whatever they are already. Uh, but I don't know how to expand it beyond that other than make these ideas available out there. Somebody might encounter it and it makes their life, they become a little bit better, whatever they already are. Um, but I don't, I don't know what happens in the future. I don't know if there's a path that allows us to have something like what you're describing, where there's a secular Buddhism place that you can go to that has activities for the community and for kids. I don't know. I'm not sure. The the Mormon part of my brain that like wants to ask, oh, here's this male who is like an expert in this thing. And I'm going to ask him this question and he's going to have the answer. <laughs> so when you say, I don't know, the, the Mormon part of my brain that's still there is like, oh, I guess we're just going to all have to figure this one out. Dang it. <laughs> but I, yeah, go ahead, Bill. No, no, I'm just, I'm, so to dive back into this idea of sitting with those disturbances, sitting with that discomfort, 
what what is when you're trying to teach people and again i get it it's it's a long time of just sitting still and seeing what those feelings do to you and realizing they're not they're not you and they don't control you and you can kind of move through them right and you're not going to die no no you're not and so yeah yeah. so when my kids would get loud my world's in chaos and so i'm screaming at them and now everybody's pissed at everybody and and I, I started it because I felt something inside and I blamed the outside world for what I was feeling. And I became accountable to what's going on inside of me. It's my, sh- you know, it's my stuff. Um, but in, in this short conversation that we're having, can you lay out the process or talk for a moment about what kinds of things the, the person who's for the first time going like, oh, he wants me to sit with my discomfort. I don't even know what that means. Can you explain the process so that people can understand what it takes to get from where they are now to beginning to see progress and to understand why this is so valuable. Uh, Yeah. So one example is with my kids um, because we don't sit and talk about Buddhism very often. Uh, A lot of these concepts would be very foreign to them, but they still get immersed in it through the way I approach whatever's happening. Uh, An example would be, um, not long ago, I went upstairs and stepped on a Lego that um, uh, the kids had been playing with Legos. And my reaction, I was already frustrated from the day. I think I, I'm trying to remember the details, like, I don't know, an email or something that I was already in a mood where I was upset. And then it's like, well, now you got to go up and get the kids to get ready for bed. And in the process of doing all that, I step on this Lego in that moment, my reactivity was uh, to yell out in frustration, to pick up the Legos and throw them at the wall, breaking the little, whatever they had built. And it's, everyone's upset. Everyone's uh, crying. I'm mad. And as it's all happening, it occurred to me, Oh, here's what just happened. It didn't happen instantly. We, you know, went down, brush your teeth, get ready for bed. And then as they, as they got in bed, By then, I was able to sit down and say, hey, guys, let's talk about what just happened up there, Um, because I got really upset and I threw your Legos out the wall. Do you know why that is? And the first, you know, the first comment was because it hurt when you stepped on it. I was like, yeah, but that's not really it. I've sat with this for a few minutes here thinking about it, and I've realized I've been in a bad mood since earlier today from something that happened with work, and I've carried that on until the Lego finally got to pay the price for it. And it turned into a conversation where we're laughing at the Lego, laughing at the fact that I stepped on it, laughing that they were scared at me when I got mad because I never get, I rarely get mad. Like we just talked to the whole thing and it was a very um, educational experience for them that in, in since then has allowed them at different times when they get really upset about something to be upset, but later we're going to talk about it. And we do, we sit there and then it's, it's like, so what happened earlier today? You got really upset. Why do you think you were so upset? Uh, What caused it? Why did that matter so much? And then they can talk through it because they see that being modeled. We don't have to pretend that didn't happen or, you know, like, let's talk about it. What was that all about? Um, And again, it doesn't have to happen in the moment because we're usually not equipped to do it at the moment. We're still in that reactive mode. But as soon as we get past it, that's a great time to talk about it and be like, what was that? And we've talked about all kinds of things along the same lines. Even if we're sitting here and eating, let's say, 
a, a meal that was prepared from and they don't like it. They say, I don't like this. I'll say, well, is it you that doesn't like it or is it your taste buds that don't like it? And then, you know, that's another opportunity to get introspective. Oh, it's my taste buds. Okay, well then, uh, or, or for, you know, whoever made the meal, well, do you have to be upset that they didn't like it? It's not them that didn't like it. It's their taste buds. Why aren't you mad at the taste buds? Stuff like that, you know? And so little conversations that happen at random times that are introducing my family to Buddhist concepts without ever talking about Buddhist concepts uh, or, or making this like something that you have to sit and talk about. Mm. Love it. So I have a question about, um, there's just been a lot of discussion lately in Christianity, in Mormonism and in post-Christianity and post-Mormonism about making a place for the feminine. And so I'm curious, this kind of pops up in different ways whenever we um, have too much of an emphasis on historically masculine virtues, that there'll be this, either it's like a God or a practice or a, just an explosion somewhere else because we're out of balance. And so how would something like secular Buddhism, where there's not, you know, a concept of a heavenly mother or a divine feminine, how does it make place for um, this kind of historically feminine parts of us that maybe were underemphasized when we were in some kind of patriarchal religion? Um, I see people seeking for that. Um, how would secular Buddhism address something like that? Uh, I think in general, the Buddhist approach to uh, of non-duality, um, recognizing this is because that is, and that makes this just as important as that. When it comes to masculine feminine, it's the same it, it's a similar notion where um, it's the balance of all these things uh, of of all things, and one thing isn't more important than another. So if we're out of balance somewhere, let's say, um, I don't know, this societal norm, that I start thinking about or talking about, oh, that's skewed this way because of a patriarchal society or, uh, you know, toxic masculinity or anything that has to do with that. You can sit and say, well, wait, what's the other side and, and try to bring balance to it. Um, I do see in a lot of Western approaches to Buddhism, it seems like you have a lot of feminine voices. You have Pema Chodron um, and others similar who are, saying all the things that we all need to hear anyway. And there's not the sense because there isn't a, an authoritative figure that represents Buddhism. You don't really have that. I mean, some people might say, well, isn't that what the Dalai Lama is? No, he's the head of one little school of Buddhism. He happens to be very well known. So he may be the most famous, but if you were to take the Buddhist world, he's not the voice for, you know, except for maybe a very small percentage of Tibetan Buddhists who follow that specific school of Buddhism. Uh, it, it makes it so that you, you do get a lot of voices from feminine authors, uh, female authors and, and practitioners. Again, like Pema, she's one that I listen to a lot. I really enjoy her work. And um, it's interesting to me. I've noticed there isn't this sense of who do I go to? Who's the voice I need to listen to? It's almost like all the voices, every single voice is the voice you need to listen to. And I found myself um, listening more to these voices. I, I remember um, unintentionally, and, I, and I'm embarrassed to even say it, but when I was in my Mormon mindset, there was a, a scale 
you know, the voice of the of the male priesthood holder is a more authoritative voice than the uh, a conference, for example, than the primary president, who's a female. It's like, well, that 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 message is less important to me. I didn't know that that's how I viewed things until uh, encountering where I am now with Buddhism, where I feel like, wow, every voice is is unique and and important. And I can encounter a voice where I say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm listening to this person. And that thought of ranking whose voice is more authoritative, that's totally out the window. There's no such thing. Uh, my 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 six-year-old daughter could tell me something that could be more profound than the Dalai Lama saying something. It's like, he's just some guy, whatever. But you know what I mean? Um, so I do think there's room for that in, in this approach where suddenly you don't have authority. Authority is what you give to someone. That's that's all it is. Um, and if you believe everyone's voice is equal and should be heard, then it's suddenly that's how it becomes. All voices become equal and and important. Yeah, I think I think when you listen to everyone and everything, you're just much more uh, likely to not miss the, the moments when they happen, huh? Like you, you get to be kind of present with whoever you're in company with rather than wishing you were someone else with someone else. And hence you're wasting the present moment again anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, Noah. It's good stuff. Um, I, I just, I'm, I'm curious on a, on a, just a podcast, a podcast. And, you know, we've got several under our umbrella that, that we do. And I'm just curious, I know that you, you are one of the primary voices when I go into iTunes and their library, when I go into uh, Google play or Amazon podcast, you know, I, I see you everywhere. And I'm just curious, it seems like you're doing really well and that there are a lot of people tuning in to your message, which I think is crucial. I'm just curious how, how well that is all playing out. Yeah. You know, it, it is playing, playing out really well. I was surprised at how, uh, how much of a demand there seems to be for, um, for the messages and and the concepts and ideas that are being shared in the podcast. Um, I mean, I know that I was yearning for that without knowing what it is that I was yearning for. And as I encountered Buddhism, the more I encountered it or the deeper I went with it, the more I thought, wow, this is actually really common sense type stuff. That's just, it's just wisdom. Anyone, anyone would benefit from this. That's what drove my interest in. Well, let, let me share it to someone who may not have any interest in researching Buddhism, but if they hear secular Buddhism, that their ears might perk up. Okay, well, what is that? Um, and apparently there's a, 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 a huge audience of people who are very interested in Buddhism as a philosophy without any sense of trying to make it your religion or make it this uh, an ism for you, you know? Uh, yeah, the podcast has grown quite a bit. I've seen month to month and year to year from when it started, it hasn't peaked yet. It's just keeps growing. Um, so that, that's been fun. Four books, right? Yeah, I have three books now. I started okay. with one and then I've had two others since. And okay. I have a few more on the back burner that are there when the, I don't know, when I'm, when the timing's right, or I feel ready to tackle another project. Can you tease us? Can ideas. you give any teasers on what you have on the back burner? Uh, yeah. Well, the, the idea, at least, I don't know if it'll stay this way. I thought it would be neat to do like, um, one, one of the requests that I get a lot from people, people want to have somewhat of the experience of going 
to like these 10 day retreats or when you go somewhere to learn about Buddhism, how can you, what is that like without having to go somewhere and sit silently for 10 days? So I thought it would be cool to create like a, a one year mindfulness practice study course that uh, every every week you would have, this is the topic, this is the discussion around the topic, and these are the practices that you can do for this week. And it'd be 52 key concepts and ideas from Buddhism with their associated practice. And at the end of that, it would feel like you went to a one-year retreat almost. <laughs> That's one I, of the ideas. I love that. And I'm going to now annoy you. I'm going to ask you, <laughs> message you, how's how's it coming? <laughs> so as you're, you know, you you make this transition where you are listening to voices in this space and then you're beginning your learning. And as you're learning, you're like, I'm just going to share this with people. And you're surprised that this podcast is just really booming. So as you're going through this, this process and learning along the way, and we're just so grateful that, um, that you're doing this, um, what are some just kind of lessons that you learned? Cause you're now interacting with a large audience who will really, I really loved that episode or that episode just like didn't resonate for me. Um, what are you seeing now as you're interacting with a growing audience for what people are needing out of it? And what have you learned just from doing the podcast and interacting with, with this audience? Oh, that's a good question. I think one key thing that I've learned just through interaction and, and observing uh, is how much of a need there is for um, to have the tools to feel a little bit more comfortable in our own skin. Like I didn't realize when you're going through a, a faith transition and you're left with this, it feels like the rug was swept out from under your feet and you kind of feel like this is, it's just me. Like everyone else got it. They're all getting it, but I'm not getting it. What's wrong with me? Um, I've learned that all of us, all of us are thinking that the only I think that the difference is some people may put on the facade that they've got it all figured out or they've tricked themselves and think they have it figured out, but they're always one event away from, from the rug being pulled out from under their feet. And sometimes it's the loss of a loved one or a, a difficulty that they're like, oh my gosh, I can't, I'm a mess. Um, so it's been fun to realize we're all a mess. There is no such thing as uh, oh, the enlightened one that has it figured out. No, what, what, what are you going to figure out? That there's nothing to figure out, that we all just try to, we're all just on this rock spinning around the sun trying to figure it out. And some people pretend that they have figured it out. That's that's really it. Um, so that has brought a, set, a, a much greater sense of uh, compassion and kindness. I think when I'm interacting with others, I feel like one thing that I like to do when I'm interacting with someone, I, I, I just picture, where will you be in 10 years? Will you have lost a loved one, a child, perhaps one of your parents? Where will you be in 10, 15, 20 years? You don't know what's coming, you know? Uh, and if I think about it that way, I'm thinking, man, we're going to look back and realize today, these are the good old times. And regardless of whatever other little thing gets brought up in our interaction and in our conversation, maybe it's you know, something that I don't agree with or a political, so what, you know, it's like, there are bigger things that we're all going to be experiencing here soon. And there's no way around it. 
and I, I'm going to try to make this the most enjoyable and pleasant interaction that it can be because I'm looking ahead to what's what's coming. Um, yeah, that that's one little aspect of since that's so doing interesting. all this, I, I feel like I'm always looking at that bigger picture. Yeah, I feel like as a kid, I just looked around at adults and thought like, oh, everybody's like got everything figured out and look at all these adults doing all these things. And now it's just like you realize that we're all just a quirk or an event away from going to the mental hospital. Like we're <laughs> all just like right there. Mm -hmm. um, but when you can be honest about it, you can have more intimate relationships. So you are um, someone who does occasionally go onto social media. Um, well, you'll post something or you have a group. Um, and so there's a lot of questions about, you know, you see the mindfulness retreats where you go to India for 10 days and obviously you don't have your, you're not scrolling through Instagram for any of that. Um, and then you come home and there's some benefits to having uh, the connections that you can make on social media can help you find your niche or um help you maybe not feel isolated or these things. What are some ways to do social media mindfully? So it's not just like, Oh, I'm on retreat and I'm not having my phone, but I'm then I'm at home and I'm always on it. Um, how would you, how would you go about teaching people to use social media more mindfully? Uh, wow. That's a good, a good question. And um, I think that's something that I'm constantly trying to balance in my own life. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I mean, I like to get on there and post my paragliding stuff because that's how, that's the world that I'm in. Um, and even in there, it can be quite unpleasant at times. Um, I feel like for me, when I think of social media as it's just a tool, it's a tool to interact with others, but how much energy and attention do I want to give to this tool? I mean, I wouldn't go around my neighborhood and knock on everyone's door and be like, hey, what is your opinion of this? Or hey, can you show me what you're eating right now? Like, I would have no interest in that. But that's what I do to myself when I open the phone and start scrolling. It's like I'm taking in all this info that I don't need. I don't really care. But there's the part of me that's it's habitual. Um, I don't know if you guys have done this, but I'll get my phone out because I was going to check the calendar to see when my son's uh, mountain bike race is. And five minutes later, I realized I didn't even open the calendar. I'm I'm scrolling through Instagram reels or something. And it's like, ah, why am I doing this? Um, so I like to pause in those moments and recognize this is actually habitual reactivity that's taking place. It's just the habit. What does skillful action look like if I treated social media as something that I skillfully act with rather than habitually react to? Um, then it can be it can be a pleasant thing for a little while, and then you'll catch yourself and realize, oh, here I'm at it again. Um, so I, I've done little practices to try to make it more of a mindful thing for me. I'll try to set timers to know between this hour and this hour. Don't even look at it. There's nothing on there for me. Uh, but then give myself little chunks where, okay, for the next 30 minutes, go at it. See what's on there. See who's eating, eating what, or saying opinions about this or that. Um, so I think that's important to just not always be one. The extremes seem difficult. You know, in Buddhism, there's this notion of the middle way. And I think the middle way with social media, the, the extremes would be, I'm just off of it, which works for some people, or I'm on it all the time. What is the middle way? You know, okay, maybe I'm on it one or two hours a day instead of six hours a day. I don't know. The middle way is going to be different for everyone and how you approach it. But 
um, that might be easier to come up with a middle way rather than think I've got to get to the extreme, which is I'm either never on it or I don't know, something like that. I am. I'm curious, you know, obviously people can check out your podcast, Secular Buddhism, and you've got a great book, uh, Buddhism for Beginners. Um, curious for folks who are wanting to like get a glimpse of what this looks like outside of your podcast, outside of your book, what other places would you suggest people take a peek to understand um, the secular Buddhist approach and, and to give it kind of a trial run? Um, I think the most common would be approaching books, different books that talk about Buddhism. There's um, Buddhism Without Beliefs by Stephen Batchelor. I think that's a great starting point uh, for someone who's interested in learning a little bit about Buddhism. It's not a thick book. It's a pretty easy one to read. Um, trying to think if there are other podcasts. Um I don't, I can't think of any other that are secular focused. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think books that that's where I started just going from one book to the next book. Um, there's, uh, there are books that are not secular, but they are Buddhist. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's Pieces Every Step, The Heart of the Buddha's Understanding. Um, and then of course, anything by Stephen Batchelor, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, Buddhism, without beliefs. My book is, is a good starting point for it's a question and answer format, no nonsense Buddhism for beginners. Those would be the ones that I would probably recommend the most. So I have a question. Um, so you, you'd written the books and you had the podcast going and then you decided to make the five minute meditation journal. So what, what prompted you to, to write that? And why did you think that, you know, I needed something different than just a book here. I needed to write something where people are more interacting with these principles. So tell us about what prompted that project. Uh, so that project was, I, I focus a lot on the intellectual explanation of things like the theory, I should say, here's the theory behind this, of why meditation is a good practice. Everything that I've done in terms of books and almost everything on the podcast, it's that it's discussing concepts and ideas in a theoretical way. And it occurred to me, I don't have a tool that I could offer to someone that's, okay, these concepts are great, but how do I actually practice this and, and not get overwhelmed? You know, I think people get overwhelmed with the idea of practicing thinking, well, now I've got to sit 15 minutes or 30 minutes a day. And I wanted to come up with something that's, this is a the five minute mindfulness journal is little five minute things you can do that put into practice some of these concepts and ideas, make it a more hands-on experience. It's something you can, it's something that you do. It's not something that you need to believe in. There's nothing to believe, but these are practices. And what happens if you try them? Very much like a podcast that's all about exercise could talk to you all about the benefits of doing push-ups, but until you actually go try to do push-ups and do five minutes a day every day, that will actually make a difference. If you think, well, I've got to do these once, I'll do it for an hour. And you're like, oh, you know, the next day I can't even feel my arms. You're probably not going to want to do that ever again. Um, so short and consistent practices was the motivation behind the five-minute mindfulness journal. And then I, I have one last question. And then, Bill, if you have, I think you had one or two more. Um, as we're wrapping up here, coming up on an hour, when you are meeting with a new group of people, 
Um, what's the like a favorite story that you tell that really encapsulates that the the work that you enjoy doing with people? Do you? I know Buddhist teachings are like children, and you want to love them all equally. But do you have a favorite child among them? Where you're like, I really love the story. If I'm gonna meet with a new group of people, you know, I, it's it's a place that I really love to start. What would that story be? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think I have a few that are my go-to stories, but I think if I had to pick one, one of the most consistent stories that will be brought up when someone wants a, an introduction to the the flavor of Eastern thought, or you know, the if you were to try to encapsulate what is Buddhist thought, um, the story that I'll usually relate is the story of the of the old farmer who. Uh, a horse shows up and he takes the horse and the neighbor, I'll, I'll tell the story real quick. The neighbor comes running over and says, how fortunate you have a horse and the farmer or the, and the old man just says, well, who knows what is good and what is bad goes about doing his thing. And the horse runs away the next day and the neighbor comes running over. How misfortunate for you. The horse ran away. He goes about doing his thing and just says, who knows what is good and what is bad. The horse comes back with additional horses. Neighbor comes running over. What a great thing. Uh, then the, the farmer's son starts uh, working with one of the horses, falls off, breaks his leg, neighbor comes running over. What a misfortunate thing. Uh, then the army comes into town and they're conscripting the youth, but they can't take his son because he has a broken leg. Neighbor comes running over and then pauses and just says, yeah, who knows what is good and what is bad. I think that's probably the most common story that I share. And because we do have the tendency to get caught in the moment of whatever circumstances we're in, we want to give it meaning. This is a good thing or this is a bad thing because we don't see the full picture. We never know uh, what's coming next. Um, and the thing that was misfortunate today turns into the reason it's for you're fortunate tomorrow. And whatever seems like the fortunate thing today turns into the, the reason of unfortune tomorrow, you know? Um, so that's a story that I like to focus on. And it I think a lot of people enjoy it because it does give you the ability to just kind of sit back and pause for a moment from the meaning making and say, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. This is just what I'm going through right now. And we'll see. We'll see what comes of this. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit, that story when I heard it the first time, it reminded me a little bit of like the movie, The Butterfly Effect. And anytime you, if you can hypothetically go back in time and change something to make your life better, you inevitably made your life worse in some other way as well. And you don't realize how interconnected all of your experience and the people around you and all the things around you are. And you start tampering with deciding that something is good or bad. And you don't realize that it's connected to a host of other things that are both good and bad. And so I, I appreciate that one. The, the question I wanted to send off kind of as my last one, there's, I feel pulled in two directions. And one of those is to really respect people and their humanity. Like everybody shows up being the best person they can be in that moment, even if it's not something you would wish upon you that they're doing or, or whatnot. And um, I, I think Buddhism teaches you to be respectful of others, humanity, and to let them be their own person. And at the same time, Buddhism teaches us to reduce suffering and to try to make the world a better place. And I'm, Curious if you have any thoughts on the juxtaposition of those two agendas to leave people be, not try to fix people, and at the same time, try to move through the world, making it a better place, which sometimes entails having to 
get somebody to pause and be able to tell them something that at least on your end you think is needed for them to to show up better does that make sense like how do how do you handle that that kind of push and pull of those two ideas yeah you know i i actually think about that a lot and i encounter it a lot um and the way that it's worked well for me as an actual practice is to focus on my my main goal when i'm communicating with someone whether it's someone close like a spouse or an in-law or or anyone really is i try to i try to focus on helping others to understand to, to make understanding the goal, not change. So for example, if you and I were having a discussion about some political view, my goal would be, let me help you understand why it makes sense to me that this, this is my view. But what I wouldn't want to do is convince you that my view is correct. And that would give me the opportunity to also want to, I want help me understand your view. Why does that view, why do you have that view? Why does it matter that way? Um, but not to pick it apart to show you why it's wrong because I, I could never change your view, but you could change your view. And that might happen if you had a more thorough understanding of your, of your view and my view, or it'll change my view. And I, my view may, may adapt because you helped me understand your view a little bit more. So I think when, when understanding is the goal, um, then you're kind of doing both of those things. You're right at that crossroads where I am, making the world a better place because we're very poor communicators in our society. And because we do usually approach it with, well, let me tell you why you're wrong and why I'm right. What if we got rid of the right and wrong and just made it, let, let me help or help me to understand your view. And I'll explain my view from the simple goal of helping you to understand it. I, but I've got to start out by, you know, making sure, you know, that I don't, I don't know that I'm right. I might be very wrong, but I can't help that I have this view. Uh, so let's, go from that starting point, let me tell you why I have this view. Uh, then I think you're kind of treading that line carefully where you're doing both. And I've, I've experienced this with my own family and, and loved ones where we can talk about the most difficult topics, whether it's religion or politics, and we have different views. And it's just fine because um, we're just trying to help understand more rather than change each other. Love it. And it has Love to it. start with one because it you may very well be discussing something with someone who is very intent on changing you and that's fine. But if you're not intent on changing them, it changes the dynamic of, of the conversation. It can still be unpleasant for you, but it's disarming for them to realize you're not, you're not doing the, you're not playing that game. Um, that's been my experience at least. Love it. It's so true. Whenever I'm, I enjoy debating with people and sometimes I enjoy it too much and, um, when I'm in my headspace, sometimes I really do want to, if I could just get, get the right argument, I can get you there. Um, but when I am coming from my humanity, it's the realization that everybody's coming to their experience and their values and their beliefs, honestly, like they came to that honestly. Um, and that allows me to have those conversations better. Um, so if people are loving what they're hearing, how can they find you and the work that you're doing and then give us um, a glimpse into what is your work look like moving forward? What are the projects that are re you're really excited about um, moving forward as your audience is growing? Um, the I think the easiest place is to find the podcast, secularbuddhism.com is the website. And I 
Um, I post podcast episodes there and they're usually it's just presenting. Here's this key concept or idea that comes from Buddhism. And then what does that mean for me applied to everyday life? Um, I think that's the easiest way to, to find my work. And then as far as future plans and the excitement of what's to come, I have a few ideas in the works, but I'm not entirely sure which way it'll go yet. I've mentioned books. I, I for sure envision having a few more of those out. Um, but I think the idea that I am toying with that I'm most excited about if I end up doing it is um, I want to create a, uh, a program like a one or a two year mindfulness type program that, that anybody could enroll and get a much more in-depth uh, practice-based uh, opportunity to apply these ideas and concepts in their own everyday lives. Love that. And we're just really, we'll be along with you for the journey because we're a part of your audience too. So we're just so thankful for that. You're not only doing this work personally, but that you've shared this journey so that we can learn with you. And we're just so appreciative for the voice that you are in the world. And just thanks so much for joining us today. And We'll, we'll be along for the ride. Well, great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Bill, yeah, do you have anything else? J just the, what you're saying. I mean, I, again, I read your book. I've listened to lots of your podcast. And uh, along with a lot of other good teachers, you've been a huge, heavy influence on me making little subtle changes that over time, as you pointed out in the beginning, rather than getting it wrong 95% of the time and getting it right five, um, maybe I'm somewhere in the range of getting it wrong 70% of the time and getting it right 30 now. And I just want to say thank you for, for being a part of that progress in my life. You're welcome. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, you're welcome. Anything else, Britt? No, that's it for me. All right. Check out uh, Noah Rochetta at secularbuddhism.com and uh, check out his book. What was the name, the name of the book again? I know it's Buddhism for Beginners is the last part, but the beginning yeah, part of it? It's No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners. Awesome. Folks, check it out. And uh, as Britt and I are trying to do, we're just trying to point you guys to second half of life tools so that you can make little changes that help you showing up as a better human being too. And little by little, we'll just make the world a better place. So love it, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman. 